0: I got a bayonet in my hand. Really? Yeah. I took a way through here, and then I took a bullet through the face okay. when I was in a helicopter, and then I took shrapnel in my shoulders and my legs, Yeah. and then I took a bullet in my leg.
1: Huh. What hurt with the worst? Probably the one on the shoulder. Really? That hurt worse than getting shot in the face? Yeah. Getting okay.
0: shot in the face, it, <laughs> that's a horrible story. It, uh, as we did the x-ray, the bullet broke into three pieces. Mm-hmm. It was an M16 round. It came through the side of the helicopter, and then it hit me through the fuel cell side. I had had my feet dangling in the doorway, so it hit me, and it knocked me down, and I came up shooting, and the bullet broke in three pieces. One of them knocked out teeth and cracked other teeth. The other one lodged right behind my nose, and the third one lodged way up in my sinus cavities, and I spit that one out about two months ago. I carried it around for 50 years and finally had a cough attack. It -hmm. had migrated down and finally coughed that one up.
1: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Like ranchers throughout the West, I'm spending the spring building fence, and it is an arduous task. The wire's heavy, the posts are heavy, the ground is rocky, you just break yourself into pieces. So to kind of psych myself up for the day, I pour a cup of coffee into a Stanley mug. I like the titanium series the best. And then I go out and I hammer posts into rocky ground, I stretch the wire, I get cut, you know, I try not to swear too much and I work all day long. And at the end of the day, I'm going to pour myself a cold drink into one of the coolest products that they make, which is the Lifted Spirits Prismatic Rocks Glass. When you pour your your whiskey over rocks into a glass, the, the ice melts pretty quickly, it seems like. So having that insulation makes for a better drink, in my opinion. And then these things have a prismatic cut in the stainless steel at the bottom that is also really pretty to look at, and I think that that's part of the experience of of enjoying a nice glass of whiskey so there's there's two times during almost every day that i 'm using something from this you know great American company that's been around since nineteen thirteen they 've got all kinds of gear on their website, and you can save yourself some money by using the discount code six ranch that 's the number six in the word ranch. It gets you 25% off. And then there's a Six Ranch Outfitters collection on their page. There's a link to that in this uh, podcast description. And that will take you right to a page that has all of the things that I like to use. Now, I don't make any money off this. It's not how most discount codes work. This is just a savings that I'm passing along to you Stanley has been a sponsor of this show for years now. They've been so supportive. And if it weren't for that support, I wouldn't be able to continue doing this. So you can support the show and get a good piece of gear at a discount by using this discount code and buying something that you like or something that you think somebody else would like. So you can go to stanley1913.com, collections, six ranch outfitters, or you can look at anything else on the website, but use that discount code and save yourself a couple bucks. My back would be shot.
0: <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be able to get off the bike. My ass would be vibrating for a week. It's <laughs> Sorry, am- you're recording. <laughs> no, you're
1: good. It It is amazing what kind of fatigue you get on a motorcycle, for sure. Like, I tend to over grip if I haven't been riding a lot, and um, my hands will go numb, and then I know I need to relax a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how how you sit on the bike and how you have the handlebars positioned and and all that makes a big difference. Having a good seat makes a big difference, but what really fatigues me is my mind. You have to stay so focused. Oh yeah. Because everything out there is trying to kill you the whole time. Yep. I had a pretty good adventure, you know, it's an adventure motorcycle. I had an adventurous ride yesterday. So I tried to come from you know, Idaho to Montana, and you know, I, I'm not going to name names. So I went up a a long river and then I took a fork of that river. I was going to try and take a logging road into Montana, and I got all the way up there, and there was a rock slide and I had to turn around. So it was a 140 mile detour. I was oh, 70 geez. miles from the turn off. Oh, um, so I turned around and I was scooting back down this road, and there's a lot of people that were fishing on this on this fork of the river. And I wasn't paying that close of attention to the fishermen, but I saw a little bear on the side of the road. So I zoomed over there, got off the bike and chased it to see if I could run it up a tree because that's the right thing to do. And instead of going up a tree, this bear like Superman off the road and landed in the river right next to a couple of guys that were fishing. And they're a little bit panicky look looking about it. Um, And then, you know, here I am in like motorcycle gear and a helmet. I was like, So, yeah, sorry, got on my bike and zoomed off. There's hailstorms and thunderstorms. You know, it was a great ride. Oh, yeah. That's what adventure motorcycling should be about. Um, It's not just, you know, going to Starbucks.
0: Yeah, my grandson does downhill bike racing. Yeah. And he's too big for it, but he does it anyway. Yeah. But one day he was in Washington, and he was riding this trail, and he ran into a black bear, Mm. just smacked into him with a bicycle. And his friends were following him, and they go, and he turned around and bailed over the edge, left his bike, and his friends are like, man, you went this way, and the bear went that way. <laughs> they said, <laughs> we didn't know who was faster. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. So, you were saying that your your dad was a uh, career Air Force. Yes. I just had a, um, a naval air traffic controller on here. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, my dad was, you know, I went to school in Spain, mm.
0: Guam, Hong Kong. Okay. And uh, in California, and then finally in, I graduated high school in Wenatchee, so.
1: Okay. Interesting. Which of those places
0: did you enjoy the best? Guam, without a doubt. Really? 1962. Yeah. The war hadn't been over that long. We could go through the jungle and pick up souvenirs. We found rifles, hand grenades one time, but that's a whole other story. Hmm. And we let, when I left Guam, the next year, the last Japanese Soldier came out of the jungle and turned himself in. Yeah, I rem- he, I remember that guy. He had been in there the whole time we were playing. Where he was at, no kidding. and never said. You know, we never knew he was there. Uh, but as a kid, because you're skin, you're diving, you're snorkeling, you're spear fishing.
1: It was just a fantastic adventure. Tell me a little bit about that that guy, because my understanding is, you know, his last orders were don't surrender, right? And. He and he took that seriously. Yeah, I only know what I
0: read. Yeah. You know, he and it seems like if I remember right, he's a sh- became a shoe salesman hmm. in, in Japan or something to do with shoes, but he, he would go to the villages and steal food, the yeah. different but he was smart enough not to hit the same village. He would hit them, you know, it, it, they never knew when he was coming. He never took much. Yeah. A little rice, a chicken, you yeah. know, stuff like that. So, I mean, he survived there for gosh, what War was over in 46, so he was there um, to 63, 64, you know, so he was in there, you know, 14, 15 years.
1: And, you know, the Japanese government was aware of him, and they were trying to, to get him to... You're trying to get him to surrender, too. He had yeah, to come out, and he thought, well, no, that's propaganda, yep. not going to fall for it. it. You know, in some ways, I have the utmost admiration for him. Hands down. In, in other ways, it's like, well, there's probably some like mental illness going on here as well.
0: You know, I think any soldier that's served and been through stuff like he went through, there, there's going to be some stress without a doubt. But, you know, he's, I've seen him interviewed since then and he seems perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, of course, you never know. Yeah. You know, you never know
1: about those injuries and there, memories. There are a couple of things that we talked about yesterday that I want to get back into. Uh, one of them was that you said the thing that you admire about Marines is you've never seen them back down Um, from a tactical standpoint. I'm curious about your, your opinion on this too, whether we're talking about a metaphor in life or, or an actual, you know, bent towards your tactics. How important is that? To never back down. Yeah. You gotta be smart with it too, though.
2: I think, you know, it's gotta be If backing down is a tactical advantage. You always got to take the tactical advantage. Yeah. Sometimes you got to give up a little bit of ground and take more ground. Yeah. Definitely.
0: You know, I've seen, I worked with a Mike force for a little bit. You know, we never went unless it was hot.
1: I don't know what that is. Mike
0: force and special forces is a anywhere from 40 to 80 men. Okay. And when there's a hot, there's a firefight going, yeah. they'll drop you in. Okay. Usually to support other SF. Okay. But Marines or whoever was in a hot spot, we'd get dropped. And I only did that for a short while, but a couple of times that we worked with Marines and they they were in a bad spot, real yeah. bad spot, but... I mean, they were standing on their ground and fighting and firing. And when we came in, we were obviously, you know, get them out because we had a bigger firepower than they had. But I've never seen one I wasn't proud of. And Help. I hate to say that to another
1: Marine. Yeah, well, <laughs> 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 yeah, I can't, I can't claim, claim much, right? Because so much of the reputation of what Marines are was built generations before me. You know, I'm just doing my best not to. Not to disappoint them. I, I
0: think that's true of all military people. I had a stepfather named Wiley Sloman. He was captured on Wake Island in World War II. Through five days after Pearl Harbor, he spent four years in a POW camp in Japan. And he had inc- there's, he's written up in a few books, you know, that are out there. And the stuff they went through; those Marines were just absolutely incredible. They had a
1: terrible time in the Pacific.
0: But on the Wake Island, if you read the books. The Marines were—they had blown off two uh, invasion attempts. Mm-hmm. They had driven the Japanese back into the ocean twice, and they were doing it in the third time. And they had already sank one battleship. On the third attempt, the Japanese were coming aboard. They were pushing them back out again. When the commander gave the surrender, the Marines were just pissed like
1: no end. Yeah. So, but. Yeah, it's interesting. You know the battle of Chosen Reservoir. Oh, yeah. Right? You've got a you've got a handful of Marines that got you know essentially surrounded by over over a million Chinese, and they uh, they didn't retreat. They just attacked in a different direction to yeah. leave, to leave.
0: <laughs> Wasn't it Chesty Polar said, "Yeah, we're surrounded, and that's a good thing. Yeah, because we know like where that. they're at." Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, so what led you to the military?
0: I had a football scholarship to University of Texas. You
1: did? That's and a big deal.
0: It was to me at the time. I, I had visions of being a pro football player. Yeah. When I got to UT and looked at all the other guys that were playing, there was no way I was ever going to make the pros. Mm. And, and I wasn't sure I was wanted to go to college and play. So I talked to a, a recruiter, not a Marine recruiter, an Army recruiter, and he he talked me that this is probably what I want to do, take some time and figure out what it was. And then I got deeper and deeper into it. And when I finished my basic infantry training, because that's what I wanted to do, I went off to jump school. And I had a 12-week layover between the Q school and jump school so I went to ranger school mm-hmm. so I was able to get through that I thought I was in shape when I left jump school but I wasn't close to being in shape and then when I got to Q school I still wasn't in shape yeah until, you know you go through those guys and it was just kind of a progression as so I had to be I don't know just personality wise I had to be one of the best I guess I didn't want to be second anywhere
1: mm. that's a risky move when you're going through military training a lot of guys are very successful who just hang out in the middle
0: of the pack yeah. But I that wasn't that's just never been my mentality, I guess. I've gotten smarter as I got older. Yeah. But you yeah. know. What we, about you, Peyton?
1: What drove me to Yeah. Yeah, twenty ten, I mean that's yeah. That's kind of a, a, a goofy time. You know, we're we're a couple of years into the recession. Um, not a lot of job opportunities out there. Uh we've been, you know, fighting a war for eight years on two fronts.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the biggest thing, I kind of had a deal with my parents growing up was if I got a wrestling scholarship, I'd go to college and wrestle and that's what I did and went and it wasn't really what I wanted. Like, I was pre-med at the time. I wanted to be a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. So I was, they didn't have a pre-chiropractic program then. So I was going pre-med and it was good. School has never been really challenging. So I kind of could blow off classes and still maintain. I think I needed like a 3.2 to keep my scholarship. And then I blew my knee out for the second time wrestling and during wrestling practice. And that kind of, I was just like, you know what, I'm done. I finished out the had surgery, finished the season. And then on my way home, I was just kind of like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. I'm not really loving school. And then that's when I just, there's literally the exit before my exit took me to the Jackson, Michigan mall. And there's like a section there where they have all the recruiters and I just kind of strolled in there and, Went to go in the Marine office and it's you know, mirrored so you can't see in. And I go to yeah. doors locked. So I'm looking at the pamphlet thing and out walks the Navy guy. And he's like, you want to join the military? And I was like, well, you know, yeah, kind of. And then we just started chatting. And like two and a half hours later, I was scheduling a PST because I wanted to do, uh, be a CB. Because yeah. my dad ran a construction company for right. my entire life. I've been doing construction since I was like 10, 12 years old. i go be a CB, come back take over the construction company and then he was just like the recruiter was like no man that's not that's not you try this and it just just kind of happened it kept snowballing and uh i went from just go do a pst we'll see what you like and where you score and like Mm -hmm. i said i'd I'd wrestle the nationals like three or four weeks before this so i was in phenomenal shape still and i was still working out and i was like sure i'll go do a pst and showed up and i'd get to the pool and they're like you can do side stroke combat side stroke breaststroke and i was just like staring at the instructor and the instructor <laughs> was a guy named Jeff Krause who was a I want to say he was a Green Beret Ranger got out and then went in and was a SEAL he's oh, wow. written some books and it's called like So You Want Me To Do What or something like that yeah. it's pretty good but he was a super cool guy and he just looks at me he's like oh boy you're going to have fun today Yeah. so they showed me really quick breaststroke and side stroke and I just jumped to the pool and just muscled my way 500 meters of breaststroke. <laughs> yeah. it was I think I passed by like 4 or 5 seconds nice got out of the pool and did the did the rest and just crushed the rest, the push ups, set-ups, pull ups and the run. And that got me good enough scores where they're asking me to go do the C sort. Do you know what the I don't I can't remember now what it stands for, but basically it's an aptitude test to see how likely you are to quit. Okay. So they were zero to four, if you get a zero, you're basically like, you're done, you're not gonna get a contract. It's gonna be, or if you do, if you get like one or two, you'll get a contract, but it's gonna be based upon increasing your scores. They'll say if you had 70 pushups this time next week or two weeks when you do it, you need to get 75 yeah. to show that you're dedicated. Yeah. And I took that and I had no clue. hadn't heard of the test before that. And I got a four on it and they walk, guy walks in he's like, did you do, did anybody tell you about this? I'm like, I've never even heard of this thing before. Walks out, walks back in. He's like, you got a seal contract if you want it. I was like, okay. So I went, did it and signed it. And the next day signed it. And then they told me to be like a year, year and a half where I left. And then I left like two months later. Hmm. I was one of the, the top recruits. So when somebody dropped out. They just go to the list, and yeah. they're like, all right, you're, you're up. You won it. And I took the spot, and that's How's all buds? she wrote. <laughs> it was good. I, enjoy, I mean, I got hurt in pre-buds. Yeah. That was because I think it happened so quickly. I didn't have time to, like, harden my legs and my body for running and continuous running.
1: Did you get shin splints?
2: I got sh- full-on fractures. Yeah. So I had shin splints. They turned into stretch fractures, and I hit them for so long that they turned into full-on full-on fractures such a common injury it really is i had let's see three in my right leg and one in my left leg yep. and uh when i went in it was like three weeks before we were supposed to test out to go to buds and one of the he was actually marine he's one of our fitness instructors pulled me aside because he saw i was dropping back in runs and he was like you need to go get checked out because yeah. you're usually top of the group and you're kind of lower back now and so i was, finally went in and the lady was like you're just Bud's Dodger, like you're scared. And mm. so she went in, she was like, We're not going to do a bone scan. We're just going to do x rays on your legs. So I was like, Okay. So then it came back the next day. I go in there to meet with her. She's like, I just want to apologize. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't have stress fractures. You have full fractures in your legs. Wow. So then I had to do 16 weeks of rehab where it's not you're not listening to music anything and the test out of it you had to do a 15 mile run on a treadmill mm. and that treadmill is just staring at a center block wall <laughs> it was so <laughs> it was worse than anything i was like <laughs> if i can make it through this run i can do it oh, but, that's horrible yeah uh, so i got rolled and then went to buds and from there on i didn't have any real issues through buds yeah. i made through everything first time um got achilles double achilles tendonitis after hell week which was pretty brutal and then yeah. I got uh, That can G- take a long time to heal up. I still deal with it today. It's been, you know, freaking what, 13 years, 12
1: years? A lot of hunters deal with Achilles injuries um, from packing out too heavy of a weight. And they think that if, if their thighs can, can get the pack off the ground that they're good. But it's their Achilles that blow up. And a lot of times it'll be the next day they'll go to get out of bed and then pop. Yep, yep. A really Ouch. common hunting injury.
2: I gotta I gotta be really careful with it because yeah when I'm hiking and
1: honey a lot that, yeah my left Achilles just screams. Now I know seals started during Vietnam. When did green berets start? About a month
0: before. Wait, oh. wait a minute. Let me back up. Green berets came from the old OSS from World War Two. Okay. Some of my instructors were. OSS people from World War II. And some of my commanders when I first got to NOM. So it started, it got its official designation about a month before the SEALs got theirs. Okay. Now John Kennedy gave us all of that. Okay,
1: so all of those Should
0: programs came from John Kennedy. Yes. Yeah, Interesting. I not know that. That's
1: cool. Huh. I'm sorry? Uh,
2: so I didn't even know that or they were that close together. They are. That's they're cool. that
0: close together. In fact, a lot of it is, when you look at our... Our pledges and our papers and stuff,
1: they're they're one stealing from the other. Yeah. You know, that's just... That was another thing that I wanted to talk about. Now, no matter what you do in the military, you take an, an oath of service going in. But depending on which branch you're in or which section of the branch that you're in, you've got additional oaths. Yes. I'll be the one to say it. There are some very prominent military figures in the public today uh, who I'm embarrassed by that I don't feel like are setting a good example of leadership. And some of them are going on to teach leadership courses, and they're in leadership roles. And I, I think it's a, a travesty. There is some humility that is programmed into the oaths that you guys both took. And I don't, I don't know if you, if an oath is something you remember verbatim, but can you at least summarize what your oath was as a beret and as a seal?
0: As a as a beret, ours was simply do what our country tells us, promote the different types of warfare that we do, and to, you know, remain loyal to our country and to, you know I forget. I read it again last night and I still can't remember what yeah. it was.
2: Uh but then I read the seal one and it was a bit
0: different. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it's I think it's a little bit different than the berets, but I think to kind of summarize it, it's just about being a professional and a quiet professional, and um just basically being the being the best and always putting your putting the best forward, um no matter kind of what that is, what it entails, or anything you're doing within your life, whether it's the seal teams or beyond and I think that's why a lot of seals get out and they go they are successful entrepreneurs, you see a lot of seals that aren't in the limelight that are very successful entrepreneurs because of the ethos that you're kind of raised under that yeah. you're doing it especially like really young guys that go in like myself when i was you know 19 and that's one guy younger than me so those guys i think when you read that and understand that when you're young and then you kind of grow up under it it makes a big difference too yeah Yeah, there was one part of
0: your oath that's not in ours that i i took for granted was is that you will never profit from your Mm -hmm. experiences Mm -hmm. yeah that's obviously a
2: big a big talking point. I mean
0: well we 've got them from special forces, also I mean we 've got some people that wrote books they shouldn 't have written yep. uh, there's not many but there's there's enough to you know embarrass you sometimes, and one of them has contacted me to help write his next book, and I never liked the guy anyway, so i won 't be
1: involved in that One of the things that I think complicates this issue is there's there's a whole generation of kids that are growing up and they're looking at these guys who are allowed on the internet and they think that that's what represents what it means to be uh, a member of special forces and, and, and it's inaccurate. So I think that it's important to talk about what it actually is. And that's a little bit about what I want to get into today. And then we're going to talk about knives. <laughs> <laughs> um within within the marine Corps you know we 're a little we 're an itty bitty branch there 's more lieutenants in the Army than there are marines in the marine Corps really i didn 't know that're um, we're, we 're small, so when they say the few, the proud of the marines that, that really summarizes it like there 's not very many of us we 're really proud of being marines you know we we love being Marines, we love other marines, we hate the Marine Corps. And, and that's kind of, kind of how it works. Is it once a Marine, always a Marine? Pretty much. Is that what I understand? Yeah. It doesn't wash off, <laughs> but, uh, then you get into, um, you know, Marsoc, which is part of, um, part of JSOC, but they don't really know how to use them. They're still trying to figure it all that out. You've got seals, you've got Delta, you've got green berets, um, all all the special forces groups in the army and everybody kind of has a specific job like special forces often means that you know the scope of what you are are supposed to do just narrows up a little bit so that you can focus on it and be better at it would you say that's fair to say yeah
2: i think so i think the in the to me the biggest differentiating factor is that one is the money and the time. Yeah. Because when you have – you can have the same training, but if you can do 10 times as much of it or you have a lot more rounds, so you shoot, like we could go out and check out a can of ammo and our gun whenever we wanted to. Right. We go to the range every single morning. I know in other forces, it's it's not that easy. You're you're counting rounds. You're getting – x amount of rounds to train with you're not getting endless time so i think that's a
1: big i had to rent golf carts to train my marines for tank formations because yeah. we didn't have enough money for fuel yeah. really i so think that's a big that's, that's sad yeah they i think it was probably the the highlight of their training they yeah. had a great time no, you know, i'm you know, sure we, of f- that. we figured it out but it, but it's dumb you know we should have been doing that in tanks not me going out to the golf course and and saying, hey, you know, I need five golf carts and my Marines are going to throw golf balls at each other while, you know, the tank commanders give fire commands. Yeah, um, but you do what you can. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: when, in special forces in my era, and in my era was long before any of this all came together. Mm-hmm. They've, first, I think, let me just say this first off I think they're better trained, I think they are have better tactics. Than we had in my day. We were kind of learning as we went along, especially in Vietnam. Well, I would hope that we would all learn from each other. And, you, know, you know, know we had the old OSS guys telling us how they did it in World War II in Germany. Mm. And then we had a jungle full of stuff and the swamps and everything else that Vietnam was made up of. And our people kind of learned, you know, what worked, what didn't work. Uh, and it was a big learning curve. And when I, just as I was getting out, Beckwith was starting Delta. And he was looking for people. And he was having a hard time dragging people into it. And then, but today what they've got organized is just, I think, so much better than what we
1: had. So were you one of the first Green Berets? No,
0: I didn't get in until... I got my beret in 67.
1: And it started in... 62. I still call that one of the first. Yeah. There
0: was a lot of people. I mean, they were in Vietnam since 59. Yeah. Not as Green Berets, but as advisors. Right. And, you know, I, I'm in the... I guess the old school, if mm-hmm. you will. I mean, we'd learned a lot by the time I got there, and we were they didn't use us the way they should have all the time. Oh, that's normal. Yeah. And uh, well, A quick story, if you got... Yeah. Uh, the only, I had two interactions with SEALs in Vietnam. One was on the okay. Phoenix teams, which we don't ever go there. And the other one was in the Plain of Reeds in Vietnam. Another guy named Sergeant First Class Murphy and I were on a hunter-killer mission walking through this swamp. It's all elephant grass, you know, eight feet tall, and you're walking through this swamp knee-deep in the water. and We're walking along, and we're being really quiet. It's just the two of us, and this is all a free fire zone. And we're walking along, and I've got the point, and Murph, go, Murph goes, listen. And I looked, and I hear, psst, psst, so, you know, spin around ready to empty a mag, and I hear, I'm an American. Don't shoot. I'm like, okay, and this guy parts the reeds and walks out, and he's a SEAL. He's carrying an automatic shotgun with a drum-fed automatic, and he goes, have you got a cigarette? I went, no, I don't smoke, and I looked at Murphy, and he goes, I don't smoke. I goes, okay, be careful. Turns around and goes right back into the bush. He was on a one-man patrol out there all by himself. Jesse knew who he was. Oh, really? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, it was. The guy
1: was good. Let me tell you what.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he was good if he got by us. Yeah.
1: So what, what type of missions were you doing when you're in Vietnam?
0: Well, I did the Mike Force and then we did Hunter Killers, which
1: were two to six men typically. And then I worked with Phoenix teams. Is Hunter Killer just like a, a small control? Do you have, do you have a... Do you have a a uh, high value target you're going after what what's that usually there's a target you're after either that or a prisoner
0: you know, you know they always want prisoners okay you know so you're always trying to look for a, the opportunity to take one but then um it's all conducted in a free fire zone so anything that's in there shouldn't be there okay so i mean it's if you see them you can it's a free, you don't have to call for permission to
1: shoot you can just shoot
0: and i wish you guys had that in afghanistan too <laughs>
1: Yeah, that sounds really nice. Yeah, a little
0: <laughs> different ROE. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. You have to be bleeding before you can shoot back now. <laughs> <Yeah>. So,
2: <laughs> you know,
0: rules of engagement, right? Uh, yeah. We, our, ours were called normal rules. You had to be shot at before you could fire. We could, it was called normal rules in my day. Yeah. But then I went into uh, Sog, and I worked Sog for two and a half years. What's that? It, well, it's, they call it Studies and Observation Group, but it, originally it was Special Operations Group. Okay. And we were doing. I was up in the north, so we were working, going into Laos and following the Ho Chi Minh Trail and trying to, you know, get, find it and locate it, and destroy it, and wiretaps, and again, prisoner snatches if you could. And we ran that with two Americans, and my team was made up of six mountain yards. Okay. And uh, how did that
1: go? Well,
0: it's, it could get real hairy. They'd chase you with dogs. You know, they got teams. They learned that we were there. Yeah. And they would chase you with dogs or anything else they had. They had special sappers that would track you if they figured out where you were going. And it happened often enough that most of our LZs we got shot out of. Yeah. So we'd have three or four LZs and do false insertions all the time. Why do you think you survived? I don't know the answer to that one. I really don't. Do you think
1: about it? I try not to. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It's it doesn't make sense a lot of times, right? And no, it doesn't make any.
0: I mean when the guy next to you gets it, the guy on each side of you gets it and you're still shooting. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you know, it's just the luck. Did you get hurt? I've got four purple hearts.
1: Four? Four. God. Peyton, how many you got? I'm lucky. Zero? Zero. Yeah. Oh man. I've got two. Four. That's overachieving. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, I wasn't trying for (laughs) him. So what happened?
0: I got a bayonet in my hand. Really? Yeah, I took a way through here, and then I took a bullet through the face when I was in a helicopter, and then I took shrapnel in my shoulders and my legs, Yeah, and then I took a bullet in my leg. Huh. What hurt the worst? Probably
1: the one in the shoulder. Really? That hurt worse than getting shot in the face? Yeah.
0: Getting shot in the face it that's a horrible story it uh as we did the x-ray the bullet broke into three pieces mm-hmm. it was an m16 round it came through the side of the helicopter and then it hit me through the fuel cell side i was had had my feet dangling in the doorway so it hit me and it knocked me down and i came up shooting and the bullet broke in three pieces one of them knocked out teeth and cracked other teeth the other one lodged right behind my nose and the third one lodged way up in my sinus cavities and I spit that one out about two months ago. I carried it around for 50 years and finally yeah. had a cough attack. It mm-hmm. had migrated down and finally coughed that one up. Wow. You save it. No, I gave it to Doc, Doc okay. Lyle. He's, Doc was a Navy doctor, did a lot with the teams. He was a
1: good guy. I, on the day that I guided my 100th elk, I had a piece of uh another piece of shrapnel pop out of my back. And I think there's still a little bit more in there cuz I struggle with with some um metal detectors at airports. Not all of them. They're very inconsistent. They are, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah.
0: I've had my thigh felt up a lot. <laughs> well, it's free, you know. <laughs> yeah, to... <laughs> but it's not a thrill. <laughs> uh
1: well, um what are some lessons that that both of you sort of took from your experiences that that have helped you be successful afterwards? That's a good question. I think a lot of
2: it comes stems, honestly, from the ethos. Mm-hmm. This. I had a very, very good first platoon, and uh, had we were all young. We had like 14 new guys. And in a platoon of typically 16 to 20, you have your OIC, your chief, and then usually a handful of older guys, but we were mostly new guys. So our older guys had their work cut out for them, and they were very good at uh, like it's instilling in us like quiet professionalism, um, being part of the you know team, teammate, self, those yeah. type of things. Those are those are really I think anybody can take those and apply those and be very successful. Because even when you're working in a shop or working in a group or working in a company, if you're always thinking you know team, teammate, self, you're always gonna always gonna be successful. Let's break that one
1: down a little bit. For the people in the back, (laughs) team, teammate self. Yeah. How can, how can somebody apply that to their life? Always,
2: I think, and it can be broken. You can say team, teammate self. I think you can say, you know, family, you know, community, stuff like you can input any words you want in there. Um, But it's always just putting others before you or putting what the main goal is before your own personal goals. Yeah. Right. So if the, you're trying to grow a company you're also trying to grow yourself, wrestling, whatever it is, knowing that as you put time into that company, you're going to grow as well with it, but putting that there first. And what it meant in the teams a lot was not nearly as deep. It was when you get back from a dive, you take care of the team gear, you help your teammate take care of their gear, and then you break your gear down. But if everybody's doing that, then everything's getting done at the same time, and it's done way faster because you don't just have 10 people doing 10 individual things. You have a team of 10 people attacking a
1: much smaller problem. This is an old concept in the military too. Like you go back to, um, to like Indian warfare cavalry. It was horse saddle self. No. And the, the common denominator in all this is self is last. Yeah. I remember in, in training one time just getting burned alive by my, uh, company commander because he came in and uh, and we'd been out in the field for however long and I was taking a shower he goes is your rifle clean and turned into the army I was like yeah it is and uh, he goes what about everybody else in your squad it's like I actually don't know that Um, so I was worried about getting myself clean before I made sure that everybody's guns in the squad were taken care of and that's a problem right yep. um, and that was that was absolutely a selfish decision that I was making and you lose military efficiency if you make those kind of decisions and yep. I think it can definitely be applied to business to relationships to all kinds of things it doesn't mean don't take care of yourself and yep. some people get that twisted right you're yep. like well absolutely. take care of yourself last means don't take care of yourself that's not it you still have to do that um, but it is last yeah what about, what about you, sir?
0: It, um, I, I agree with what Peyton said. That we, I ran as much smaller groups. So we ran different types of missions, and I think that's characteristic of a lot. I mean, our missions can go anywhere from a day to 30 days. Hmm. And, like, correct me if I'm wrong, most SEAL missions are one or two days. In, at least in Vietnam, they were topping out at that. They'd set up an ambush site, and that was they were, going, yeah, they were in more for DA breakfast. DA-type stuff you know, and, but we were gone for, you know, long periods of time, and so when we got back, we had a lot of indigenous with us, that's part of what we tried to do, was bring the indigenous people in to help us fight, so usually we would break off, and one guy would go make sure the the indigs had everything put away, and they cleaned their weapons, while the other guy was getting beer, and coming back so we could take care of our gear. Mm -hmm.
2: Team gear, gotta happen. I'm yeah. sorry. So it's team gear. has got to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Beer. Beer.
0: Yeah. Beer. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an important factor. Yeah. Uh, especially, well, it was over there anyway. It, um, but most of my teams were small. So we didn't have big teams. We didn't have large platoons. And special forces has a lot of animosity in my day in mm-hmm. it. I'd, I still judge Green Berets by if they have a, a CIB, Combat Infantryman's Badge. Yeah. Because you have to be under fire engaged in combat for 30 days of you know in that time frame you don't have to be shot at every day but you're in there and you actually take live fire and less less than half had that cib hmm. there, there's so much administration and so much politics and we were involved with the cia in a lot of a yeah. lot of instances
1: i've gone back and forth on some of that stuff it's the combat action ribbon for the marines and a lot of marines it's very, very important that, that they wear that, you know, you see the stickers on the cars and all kinds of nonsense, but they, they want it. And I saw, I saw Marines take excessive risk in order to get a combat oh. action ribbon. I saw Marines fake stuff, um, fake engagements so that they could get combat action ribbons. Yeah. And I really hated that. And the other, the other side of it, like, well, I have the utmost respect for combat veterans and, and, and the amount of support that I will give a, a fellow combat veteran is is honestly above and beyond what I'll give somebody else, if I'm being honest. However, I know that there's nothing that I could do in combat without the support of a hell of a lot of people that we're never going to get shot at. And I don't disagree with
0: that. Yeah. I mean, I think the old adage was for every man on the front line, there's seven people in support. Oh, yeah, at least. You know, so, And I believe in that, and I'm yeah. grateful, believe me, for those. But in our group like I had a one major that wanted to run a mission just so he could get a CIB. Yeah. And he got it I, didn't go well with him out there.
1: I don't like that. I don't either. And 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 that that's not military leadership. That's being no. selfish. It's stupid. It's all political. Um, but it it is something that happens and uh and it's worth acknowledging. Uh what kind of knife did you carry when when you were working? I started with a Puma White Hunter. Okay.
0: Uh, it was one I could afford. What What were the qualities of that knife? It was solid. It was German built. It mm-hmm. was solid. It had a big front blade. Uh, if you were going to use one, it had all the potential for anything you wanted to do with it. Yep. I carried that one, and then I carried another. I had a K-Bar. They gave us all K-Bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, the Puma was my go-to weapon when I needed it. Yeah. What about you?
2: I always carried a Winkler. <laughs> Did you? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. so trendy.
2: Yeah, well, I was giving We were giving them. So, oh, you were. Yeah, that's cool. So I always actually lost it in the bob oh. when I was guiding a couple of years ago, which oh, that sucked. Summer. Yeah, I always carried it. Scout carry even when I was in. I'd carry it behind my med pack. Yeah. I was always on my butt, and then I could just.
0: You, you guys didn't get K bars.
2: Uh, we did when we graduated, but they're more um more decorative, ceremonial. And yeah, it was yeah. ceremonial. It, was, it had a a seal. Actually, mine was actually a. uh um, a UDT on it, you know, and it was engraved and, you know, I have it at the house, but. What is UDT? UDT is basically before the SEALs, you know, underwater uh-huh. demolition teams. That's where we kind of started. Yeah. Um, those are guys going and blowing up Japs gullies and things like that, clearing yeah. beaches and doing the, we still do it during budge. You know, you go out with your thing and map the beaches out and check the, check the tides and yeah. the real old school stuff. And yeah. Yeah, fundamentals. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And I'm glad, you know, no matter how much the wars and warfare has changed that that's always part
1: of buds and that's good. Where were you in Afghanistan?
2: Um, I spent a little bit time there. I was in uh bath for about 30 some days. We flew in, we were on a, a blowout. So we flew in for, we were supposed to do a raid and then fly back home. So we were there for a little while. We spent way too much time there and then they ended up kind of blowing the mission at the last minute and then it was all over the news but it uh we didn't end up actually going on it but it was it was interesting
1: what (laughs) what happened if it was on the news
2: um we were we were there for an hr and um hr hostage rescue and they kind of buzzed it i think they got caught on to us that we were there because you know it's middle of nowhere in the neighboring country of afghanistan is where we're supposed to go and they could hear the ISR and they finally pulled them out and went and we basically called them like, here, here's, here's two hostages. Either you guys go get them or we are. Hmm. So they went and a big firefight and they actually grabbed them. And then we did an exchange on a tarmac versus actually going in and doing like a raid. Okay. So a lot safer, a lot better because the team we were with, we had on deployment, we had lost a guy before that and got a bunch of guys got shot. But, uh, so it say lot safer that way, but it was still kind of you work out for something for thirty days and you 're there and you 're trying to you want to do it and then it gets gets kind of muddy like that it kind of kind of a bummer who but was the hostage It was a female American and then a Canadian male mm. and they he he went there to prove that you know basically they were good people that the American media was a split it was portraying them as bad people uh-huh. well, then they got wrapped up for. I think they were in, I think they were there for like eight or nine years. She had two or three babies while in captivity. So there was a, I think we were expecting three children and all kinds of stuff. And he right. was, she, she and the kids were in a hole and he was sleeping with the males. And so it was an interesting, interesting dynamic there. But, uh, wow. yeah, it was, it was interesting, but that was really the only time I'd, I spent in Afghanistan. I spent a lot more time in, uh, um, North Africa, hmm. Djibouti, Somalia, okay. Yemen, those kind of areas.
1: Um, anything kinetic?
2: Yeah, we did some stuff in in, in the Yemen, um, right at the turn of
1: Trump's presidency. Yeah, that was. There were some Marines there at the same time. Yeah, my buddies was there. That that got a little spicy for a minute.
2: Yeah, I, I was on that one, and that was, yeah, that was that was fun. That was an interesting one. We lost my TL, and then uh, a couple of other guys got shot. What you guys were talking about earlier about the guy on the left and the right of you getting hit, and yeah exactly what happened i was team leader in front of me team leader right here or the two you end up being the team leader but they both got hit and dropped right on each side of me and we just kept going but yeah that was that that time frame was pretty pretty gnarly in there i'm sorry to hear that but no it was it was interesting but yeah we did a lot with the marines on that yeah they uh they missed the target on us they wanted to shoot uh some new missile, like a HIMAR, some some new missile system that they had. Mm-hmm. And we went to do a hit, and we could see the target, and they called us off, and like, they're going to hit it with this. And then they shoot, and it's like the vehicle, the, you know, ISR's <laughs> lighting up the vehicle going this way, and then boom, like way over here. We're like, what just happened? <laughs> Wasn't even close. And it was like a, you know, there's like a, there was a $500,000 miss.
1: Yeah, <laughs> wrong, wrong lead. Yeah, <laughs> and we're like, oops. But yeah, it was... Interesting. We did a training exercise in uh, in Twenty Nine Palms one time, and it was tanks versus aircraft. It was tanks versus helicopters during the day, and we just found nice spots, shut down the tanks, became the same heat as the ground around us, and we won. Um, you know, we had we had lasers, um, laser shooters, and laser receivers on all the vehicles, and we beat the helicopters during the day and went back to the Chow Hall and you know talking all the trash that I could possibly talk, feeling pretty good. <laughs> And then we went back out that night, and they had some jets up. And I remember looking over at my wingman um, with my uh, with my night vision on, and it looked like he was parked under a streetlight. And I thought they had, like, a white headlight or something on. I picked my NVGs up, and there's nothing. Put them back down, and I called him on the radio. And as soon as you get shut down, your radio doesn't work anymore. And then suddenly the streetlight was on top of me, and I was like, oh, this isn't very fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I've been painted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gig us up. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. There's nowhere to go. No. Yeah. So, um, when did you start making knives? When I was eight years old. Really? So, it's a lifelong thing. It's, I've, I've been addicted since. Yeah. Do you feel like you've made more knives or lost more knives? Oh, I've made way more. Okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I was somebody asked the other day how many I've made and I'm like, God, I don't have any idea. I can go back a ways and I'm probably around the ten thousand mark.
1: Yeah. And my understanding is that twice you made the best knife in the world? My wife and I. Yes. Your wife and I. My you. wife does. Okay. I, I build a
0: really nice knife, a really good knife. Yeah. And then she turns it into art. Okay. I mean, she just is Before cancer, she was a phenomenal scrimshaw artist, Mm. Uh, just absolutely phenomenal. She didn't even know she could scrimshaw until I asked her to do one one time.
1: What is scrimshaw?
0: Scrimshaw is where you take a very sharp, sharp object and kind of scratch into what what the pattern you design you want to do. Um, The old whalers used to do it on, Mm -hmm. you know, whale's teeth and stuff like that and sailing ships and all that stuff. And then you can put the ink into it, whatever you want. You can do a black and white or color or. And then you have reverse scrimshaw, which I showed you that buffalo, yeah, and a, a horn is made out of hair, and I think it 's glucose, mm-hmm. but when you pick it, the white hair comes out, and when you see that white buffalo that 's all that is is hair
1: no kidding,
0: yeah, so you I mean there's no you don 't get to screw up I mean what you get when you pick it you 've got it that 's it, and she 'll sit there for hours and pick at those
1: things and do it i she 's totally right brained, so if you are are trying to build a knife for a competition like that that you're going to submit against every other knife builder in the world. What's the real difference between how you're building that knife and how you're building, you know, the knife that we're working on here today? The knife
0: itself, none. I mean, you want I want everyone that when you pick it up, it's got a we call it the ooh ah factor. It's mm-hmm. got twice the ooh ah, once when you pick it up, once when you use it. You know, it's, ooh, all your buddies want it. Your buddies want to hold it. They want they want one like it. That's the goal, to have one like that. I mean, we have some that, some of the knives we make are purely non-cosmetic. They're just pure functional blades. But at the same time, they've got to be perfect. You know, if you're off a little bit, then the knife's not perfect. You want it, if you put your name on it, you've got to be proud of it. Yeah. And then I give it to my wife after I've done something with it that's special, It's special Damascus or special something. And in those days when we were winning, we could use elephant ivory. Mm. So she would scrimshaw into elephant ivory. And the, one, the second one we won with is still at the Army-Navy store here in Kalispell. I don't know what price he's got it on it anymore. He's just, he's a fanatic on scrimshaw. And so she'll find something that's, we've learned with knives, most of the people interested are interested in game
1: animals on it. So that's been our theme with it all along. I like it too. I I want to see an animal on a, on the box of bullets that I buy. You know, I, I there's been times that, that I felt like that's corny, but I actually think that it's, it's really classy and it, it's representative of, of that connection. And a knife does an interesting thing when you're working on an animal because it, it connects you from the outside to the inside. And it's it's really really special you talk about you talk with surgeons and they have a special re- relationship with their scalpel yeah um hunters have a special relationship with their with their knife there's there's always been that connection and people have been using knives for way longer than they've been using fire like this is the biggest part about who we are as a species is our ability to use a knife And i don't disagree with you i mean you got a knife in your hand almost
0: every day. Yeah, I mean, whether it's the kitchen or something, you've got some sharp thing
1: going on. So, I mean, it's yeah. I've
0: I've always been fascinated by them,
1: Peyton. There's a there's a lot of companies that like present themselves as as veteran companies, um, and that's a big part of their identity. I think that civilians are a little bit lost as to what the expectation should be that comes with that. Um, So with you guys working together, why does it matter to somebody who's buying a knife from you that the company is formed of a seal and a green beret? That's a really good question. That was our second
0: knife of the year. Um, I I think... You give some credibility to what your claim is. Selling knives, a lot of times, like anything, it's all about the story that That's goes with stunning. it. That's stunning. That's a stunning photo. Now, she's phenomenal, isn't yeah. she? And anyway, um, the story counts. You know, Peyton's got combat experience long after mine. Mine was, but I've had the expertise in building the knives. He's more in touch with the current, what's going on now, mm-hmm. what people are expecting. And I think because of the legitimacy of who we are. I mean, uh, I, th- this is going to sound really bad, but I'll put my combat experience against anybody's. I don't know many people that have more or have seen more than I have, and I hope they never have to, that anybody has to. And Peyton's had his share with what he did with uh, SEAL Team 6 and his all his attack dogs and stuff, and I don't have any concept of how that works. But he brings to the table, when we started this partnership, I've rejected two other partners to come in to work with me and when Peyton came along it was kind of like okay come in let's see what you do what it is man he's got that drive a spec ops guy's got he's got that attention to detail he's got that attention that something everything's got to be just right because we're putting our name on it that wrestling background helps too uh, it probably does I'm not a wrestler I mean I, I wasn't uh it was
1: football for me and it's the only sport that I care if somebody puts it on their resume. Really? Yeah. If if it's something else, you might as well just leave it off. But if if you wrestled, even if it's just in high school, put that on your resume because it means something to a lot of employers. Mm-hmm. I'll be darned. That's why yeah.
2: the special forces they're they're like sixty seventy percent wrestlers. Yeah. If you look at you break down, it's like sixty seventy percent wrestlers, like twenty thirty percent water polo players, at least for the SEAL teams, and then the rest it's like fractions yeah because most of them it's, it's mostly wrestlers
0: most of the sf guys were country boys yeah yeah i mean that's what in my era
1: i mean i don't know what it is now um, you've got to learn how to work at an early age if you're going to be good at working oh later. yeah mm-hmm. and if you grow up from the country you're going to work your whole freaking yeah, life i remember
0: my grandfather i asked him for could i have an allowance and he said i already had one yeah and i said really he goes yeah room and board get to mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. <laughs> that was it yeah okay fine
2: you know, yeah, you know, I think all the years I worked for my dad, I maybe actually got like two paychecks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> nice. So he'd be like, "Oh, I
2: bought you this, remember?" And I'd be like, "That was like two hundred dollars. You owe me like a thousand dollars. What do you mean? Yeah, We've like, been working 12-13 hour days, absolutely. and I haven't seen yeah. a dollar." He's like, but, "I bought you lunch."
0: <laughs> but you know, for the part as a kid growing up working like that,
1: I, I loved every minute of it. Yeah, you know. So I still, I still feel like we haven't quite answered the question for people: Why should they care? that if they're just thinking about the product right if they're just thinking about the knife why should they care about your backgrounds i think That's it a makes a good question
2: um i think it's legit that legitimizes it but it it gives you like if, if you were to go to anybody on the street and be like i want to buy a knife from you like what's the experience that you've brought into designing this knife yeah right and it's like well I watch some YouTube videos and I just enjoy making knives. It's like, all right, well, maybe may be a very good knife, but like what experience has gone into that knife? Yeah. Like, why is it, why do you want to shape it this way? Why do you want the handle like this? Why do you want, and it's like, well, because it's correct or what? It's like, well, our designs are going to come from a place of like a utilitarian type, like, no, this is what we would use overseas. Like we have knives that Thomas has here sitting here that were designed by people and designed by himself that, They've been used overseas, and it's like, well, you know what? We used it, we brought it back. We didn't like this, so we're gonna. It's been combat tested, brought back, changed, went, sent back out. You know, and it's just, it's got years and years of experience and expertise behind it to back up just not just another pretty knife with you know?
1: massive consequence if it fails. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then another thing is, you guys are are both um, both have experience being big game guides in mm-hmm. the West. Yep that's that's huge to combine those two yeah yeah
0: i I agree, I mean, we know what we need to do is you know i I was an avid hunter my whole life, and as a kid, we had subsistence hunting, mm-hmm. we had to, um so I've always hunted, and
1: yeah, I knew what kind of knife I wanted, didn't always have that one, but we had subsistence hunting when I was a kid too, but I think uh, the technical term is poaching. <laughs> well, that's a more of a modern term. Isn't it? it doesn't apply to anybody over seventy. <laughs>
0: yeah, it was what we were doing. That's
1: a fact. It, yeah, but I mean, I mean, it's all right. It's all right and i know people are going to light me up for for saying that some poaching is justifiable but some poaching is justifiable
0: you know people got to eat yeah you know and that, and i don't disagree with that
1: and wildlife is held by the state in a trust for the public and part of the reason that wildlife is important is not just to fill out niches in the ecosystem it's because it is a reserve food source during world war 2 they closed elk hunting in the state of Oregon for two years. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I just learned about this recently myself. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. It was the last two years. So I think part of it was we need a reserve source of protein. Um, so we're we're going to preserve this for, for everybody. I think another part of it was they wanted fewer reasons for men to stay home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Yeah. But yeah. the, the impetus for that, I, I don't fully understand. But um, no, we, we do need to consider our wildlife at, as a food source, as a sustainable one. Um, and we need to make sure that it stays that way. But uh, no, there, there's still plenty of people out there that, that kill venison for meat illegally so that they can feed their families and still do so in a responsible way. Um, and while some people are going to have a problem with that, I'm not going to count myself among them. Peyton made a comment a moment ago about why we why our knives
0: should be more credible than a lot of them mm. is that when I I've done a lot of shows over the years and when you watch somebody pick up a knife you know exactly if that guy knows what he's doing or not. Yeah. You know, is he holding it like he's going to hunt with it, he's going to skin with it, or is he just gripping it or is he trying to do a Jackie Chan with it? You know, yeah. you just you kind of watch that and you know you know who's real who's not real. When Peyton walked in he started picking up knives and this man knew how to handle a knife. He knew what it was about and he he knew that it was going to be used for this or it was going to be used for that and um and I, I
1: don't you don't want to get into the hatchet today I'm sure. But. Well, no, we can I I will say that you know I I rode a motorcycle 16 hours to come out here and meet with you guys to to design this with you and that we've got a we've got a project coming along that you know, when it's when it's ready, we'll let everybody know about it, and and they can uh, get on the list to get one themselves. But it took the design of three of us to get the product that came out right. Yeah, and That's... it was super fun to sit down here and go from, you know, all three of us drawing on here to moving it through the various stages that, that people see in this little video that I'll make. And, uh, you know, the, the product is going to be a collaboration of, of three people from, from very similar backgrounds who have had different lives that you know i'm i'm fortunate to be able to sit in the room with the two of you and, and work on something together it's pretty awesome this is a great day you know no, jesse of fun.
0: i speak of jesse jesse was a seal my era and one of the most incredible men i've ever known ever and he we were somewhere and somebody said thank you for your service and Jesse came up with the most beautiful comment I ever heard. It was, thanks for being somebody worth fighting for. Yeah. And I've kind of hung on to that one. I don't use it all the time, but there's people I do
1: use it on. And that's a big reason, right? It is. Um, and there's there's a lot of folks out there that uh, are not living in a way that feels like they deserve that type of gratitude right now. Yeah, um, But that's... Uh, that's the nature of freedom. That's it. It's your choice. It's what yeah. we fought for. Yeah. So, uh, while that isn't the way I would expect them to spend that dollar, it's, uh, it's theirs to spend, I guess. You know, that's exactly right. And we all fought for the same thing. Yeah.
0: We may not like the way it came out, but yeah. that's what we fought for.
1: Yeah. Uh, okay. Parting advice to, to a young person that, that thinks that they want to be a SEAL. That thinks that they want to be a Green Beret. That thinks they want to be a Marine. Um, what advice do you have for them? I get contacted a lot. I actually, just did in the
2: gym the other day, about people are like, "Well, I got a friend that wants to go to BUDs," and I always say the same thing. It's like, "What BUDs is a challenge, but it's it's a little blip. You know, it's a speed bump in the road. You have to really want to do the job. Like you have to fall in love with the job and what it is to be a SEAL, not just." I want to test myself and go to Bud's. That's just part of it. Like, yeah, yeah definitely. You know, you want to push yourself. You want to see what you're made of. Go to Bud's. But, and I didn't believe it in Bud's. They were like, this isn't the coldest, the most tired, anything that you're going to be. Bud's is not that hard. And then you get, and you're like, no, there's no way it's going to be harder. And you get to the SEAL teams, you do some stuff. And you're like, wow, no, they were not kidding. Yeah. It is way harder. So you have to want to do the job. And you want to, you have to love the lifestyle and the actual, the job itself. Not just the, it's like the the sex appeal of going to buds or going through any sort of selection course of, I'm going to see how hard I am afterwards. It's like, no, that's just a little piece. You know, that's just to see if you've got what it takes to do the rest of it. I love, the seals have a saying that I
0: absolutely love. It's the only hard day. The only easy day was yesterday. The only easy day was yesterday. Yeah. You know, and that's really, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just for the military, but in life in general. But My son be- went to BUDS, went hmm. to went to SEAL training. I told him, "Don't." Yeah. You know, I don't recommend that
1: for anybody. Yeah. I mean, I I don't either. I uh, and I'm glad that I'm glad that people do it. Uh, it's a big risk um, because it requires a certain amount of luck to make it through, just mm-hmm. due to injuries and illness and stuff like that. And if you don't make it, and you that's the kind of job that you wanted there's not much of that in the rest of the Navy. Yep. Um, so if you, if you want to do a, a gunslinger job, then army or Marine Corps is going to be a lot better option for you. But I'm glad that people are, are willing to take that big risk because there's a, there's a handful of really specialized missions that the seals are the best at doing. And I'm glad you're there. are still going to need guys to do that. Yep. Um, and you know, they also make my favorite sunglasses once they get out. <laughs> Yeah, I got to get me a pair of those. Yeah. <laughs> Knew it.
0: Yeah. After he, after Payton was telling me about it, I'm like, okay, I need a set of those. Yeah.
1: So, no, they're is. really good at looking cool. I think yeah. that's ABCs. Yeah. Always be cool. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Don't, don't get awesome. lost. Yeah. <laughs> if you get lost, continue looking cool. Yeah. 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 ABCs. Okay. Uh, if somebody decides that they want a Rucker knife, how do they do it? They can go to the website, Shopify? Well,
2: yeah, it's just the, w- the regular website. We just finished setting it up. Okay. So, it? RuckerKnives.com. Just yeah. straight yeah. out.
0: Yeah, you can call Peyton or myself, either one. Yeah. Phone numbers are on, this web- they're on the website.
2: I think so. To contact yeah. us, yeah. Or social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and all the... I post all the pretty knife pictures on Pinterest for people to look at. Nice. But, uh, yeah, inf- Instagram's Rucker.Knives and then...
1: Uh, Facebook, you just search Rucker Knives. I think. Cool. And there's links to all this in the podcast description, as normal. Uh, we've got some more work to do here this afternoon, gentlemen, and I'm looking forward to learning more from you. And I want to thank you both sincerely uh, for for hosting me and uh, and for taking the time to talk on the show today. Thanks for
2: coming out, man. We appreciate you. Appreciate
1: it. Cool. Been fun. In the United States. There are about 15.2 million hunters, that's how many hunting licenses we sell in the country, and they spend around $21 billion per year, which breaks down to an average of $2,800 per hunter. Now we need to be really smart about how we spend that money. You can't spend it on stuff that's gonna break, otherwise you have to buy something else again and you end up costing yourself even more. We also need to be smart about how much weight we carry in our packs, because that's a serious limiting factor. One way to remove about five pounds out of your pack without sacrificing your ability to find animals is to get rid of your spotting scope and tripod. Now, there's a time and a place for those things, and I carry both of them a lot. But if I need to go lightweight, I'm going to carry stabilized binoculars. And the best stabilized binoculars I have ever used are from Sig Sauer. They are the Zulu 6, and they just came out with a new pair called the Zulu 6 HDX. I use the 12-power magnification model. They weigh 21.5 ounces and they have two modes of stabilization. So you throw the lever forward once and that's gonna stabilize the image. If you turn it off and turn it back on again, that's gonna stabilize it even more. And I'm not kidding, it is more stable than if you're glassing from a tripod. It is absolutely incredible. You're going to be able to see stuff at just incredible distances and really break it down. Like you're going to be able to tell the difference between a Billy and a Nanny Mountain Goat at a mile. You're going to be able to actually see if there's a kicker coming off that 4x4 four four Muley that just popped up over the hill. They work great at early and last light. They work great at highlight. They fit really well in my hands like this was one of the first products that I asked Sig to make when I started working with them. And to no surprise, they were already on it. They were way ahead of me. But this is a really good piece of gear. I highly encourage you look into it. You can go to sigsour.com. Look for the Zulu 6 HDX. It comes in a few different magnification settings, but the one that I like the best is the 12 power. Check it out. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something and they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all of the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. And Celia, soon to be Harlander, uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. I also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome thank you so much please keep listening to the show write me a review if you feel like it and just keep doing your thing and we'll all learn from this together it's been fun and you know we're, we're just getting started